Will you pray with me for just a moment? And, oh, Lord, we ask that you let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable unto you. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, pastor, church, and all the congregation for letting me come back here. You may not know, 18 years ago tomorrow, I preached my last sermon in this church. It was on my 62nd birthday. Now, a few days ago, your kind pastor called and asked if I would come back and preach the last Sunday of January, and here I am. I am still in my 70s. <laughs> Tomorrow, I will join that group of people who are in their 80s, and I'm just glad to be alive and glad to be anywhere. But I know that I'm not the only one going to be 80 tomorrow. If you are 80 years of age or older, would you stand if you can? <laughs> stand up. Now, to my knowledge, and that's maybe in error, and if I am, I know you'll tell me. You're always nice to do that. <laughs> Colonel Cooper, will you stand? There he is back in the back. In March, he will be 96. Now, if you're here and you're older than that, just holler at me. I didn't think so. So, Colonel Cooper, congratulations. Oh, we got one older than that. Two wonderful young people who are here in their 90s. Now, I did a little searching in the Bible about 80. And you know, Moses was 80 years of age when he led the children of Israel out of captivity. And then his brother Aaron was three years older than that. He was 83. And then Joshua, who was their successor, was older than that. He was 85, and he still said, I'm as strong as ever. So I don't know that I can say that, but I do say this. Thank God for good health, for good strength, and I want to say to you, regularly, I thank God for a great church like Shades Mountain Baptist. You'll always hold a special place in the heart of my family and me and somewhere in this giant congregation. My wife and two daughters, I think, are here. Janice, Joy, and Carol, if you're here, I don't know where you are. Would you stand up? <laughs> Way in the back. All right. Thank you for being here, and thank you for loving us and for letting us be a part of this wonderful church. You may remember, if you were here the last Sunday of November, 
that Dr. Robert Smith was our special guest, along with your member, Dr. Andrew Westmoreland and Dr. Timothy George. And at that time, Robert Smith was announced as the one who had taken over the Carter Chair at Beeson Divinity School. And one more time, I want to say to you as the church that your gift to that Carter Chair is still by far the largest single gift. It is now approaching $1 million. We have one and a half to go. But I'm grateful for Robert Smith. I'm grateful for the school. And I'm especially thankful to our pastor and to our finance committee and deacons and leaders and church for the generous gift you gave of $250,000, which was the initial gift. And with all our heart, I want you to know my deep, genuine gratitude. Now, I could almost become nostalgic up here. I don't want to do that. We're here to preach, and I want you to know I'll do my best to honor you and honor the Lord and honor this occasion and get you out on time. I'll do my best. I've got a clock right here in front of me. You heard a few moments ago the first part of our text this morning. This is a sermon that I didn't choose to preach. I was told what to do by our pastor. For many years, I told him what to do. And now he's preaching a series of sermons on the kingdom of God and Matthew and the other gospels. And last Sunday, you heard a message on the sower and the soil and the seeds. The one who had a shut mind, had a shallow mind, had a split mind and a sensible mind, and he asked me to follow that today, which I'm going to do. Now, I want to announce to you in advance, it's not an easy sermon to preach, and it's not an easy sermon to listen to, so fasten your pew belts, because he's asked me to preach on what we sometimes call the parable of the tares, or the, actually in the NIV, it's the parable of the weeds, and it is a somber warning that we want to look at. Michael read the first part of the text in verses 24 to 30. After Jesus had told this parable to them, they asked him, what did it mean? To explain it to them. And so if you look in your Bible again, in Matthew chapter 13, he begins to explain it to them in verse 36 in response to their question. Here's what he said. This is not my interpretation. This is what Jesus said was the meaning of the parable he had just told them. He left the crowd, went into a house. His disciples came to him in verse 36 and said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, and here's the explanation. The one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. And the harvesters are the angels. And with that, he finishes the explanation. But he adds to that a word of caution, a word of warning. Here it is. He says in verse 40, as the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, as you saw in the screen a moment ago. So shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels. They will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus was a master teacher. If you've ever taught, you've, you can profit by the teaching example of Jesus. He was a master at taking profound truth and putting it in simple language that anyone could understand. Parables were his favorite vehicle in teaching. And when you study the, the synoptic gospels, there's not a single parable in John but in Matthew, 43% of that one gospel is given over to parables. Mark has the least, 16%. Luke has the most, 52% of the gospel of Luke are parables. But all of this indicating how important this was to Jesus. Now, when I was just a young lad in Sunday school, I learned a definition of parables. It's, I've never improved on it. It's a rare elementary definition but here it is in a nutshell, that a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. I don't think you can improve on that. It's something we can see in the here and now that talks about something way beyond this. He took simple truth, and he took profound truth and put it in simple language that anyone could understand. Now, if you have your Bible still open, you may want to mark at the top of it in Matthew, 8, Matthew 13. More parables are found in Matthew 13 than any other single chapter in the Bible. Altogether, there are seven or eight, depending on how you count them, but no other chapter has that many. Now, having said that, of the 60 parables that Jesus told, he only interpreted two Last Sunday, your pastor explained to you the parable of the saws, the seed, the sower. He did explain that. And today, the parable of the weeds or the tares, he did explain it. They're the only two out of 60 that he told where he explained this parable. Now, quickly, let me tell you telescopically where we're going in these brief moments of worship. What I want you to see in these verses that Michael and I have read together are these four things. One, the recitation of the parable. That's in verses 20 through 30, 24 through 30. Secondly, in the midst of that, there are two interrogations, two questions that are asked as Jesus recited that parable to them. And then he gives a sevenfold explanation of the parable he has told. And you see that in verses 36 and 39. And then he comes, and the main thing we want to look at this morning, he gives a practical exhortation, a challenge. Every parable Jesus told had one main point. Now, there may have been other things, but the one main point, and he gives us that in the closing verses here. But look with me for just a moment, because Michael read it so well a moment ago. The recitation of the parable in verses 24 to 30. Essentially, what we see there in verse 24, good seed was sowed. Secondly, bad seed, we that are later called weeds, are come up. And then there are two logical questions. We'll look at those in just a moment that are asked. And then the question was, where did the seeds come from? And do you want us to stomp the devil out of them and get rid of them? And the answer comes. 
No, leave them alone. Now, here are the two questions that I want you to look at quickly. When they listened to the story that Jesus told, this earthly story with a heavenly meaning, obviously they had a question, two questions. Master, where did the weeds come from? And he said, the enemy, and later defines the enemy, the devil put them there. Now, if you're having trouble understanding this, if you've ever had a garden or a lawn perfectly manicured, the next thing you know, weeds are growing up. You didn't plant them there. You didn't cultivate them. You didn't water them. You didn't fertilize them. They just come up. I was blowing off our driveway the other day, right in the middle of concrete. Weeds were popping up in that thin seam in the concrete driveway. How did it come there? I don't know how it came there. I kind of believe Jesus gave the answer. The devil put it there. (laughs) Weeds that bother you in your field or your garden or your flowers, wherever. He says, the devil put them there. I said, well, Lord, you want us to go out and grab them and throw them away? No, he said. Leave them alone. We'll look at the reason why in just a moment. But he said, What I'm saying to you is, it's not the position of Danny Wood or the deacons or the leaders of this church to pull up all the tares and get rid of them. And I'll explain why in just a moment. That is not the job of the church leaders. It's not your job to go along popping up weeds that you think ought not to be here. You know why? You don't know who they are. Now, you want me to tell you who the weeds are? I don't know either. (laughs) Nobody does. That's what Jesus said. That's why it's so dangerous. You nor I know who they are. Only God does. Now, with his parable in mind and the two questions they ask in mind, look at the sevenfold explanation of what he said. It doesn't take a theologian to understand it. Carefully. He walks through the seven things here to explain to them what he meant by this earthly story with a heavenly meaning. First of all, he said, the sower is the son of man, Jesus. Secondly, he says, the field is the world. Notice, not the nation Israel, exclusively like some people would want to make it. You have a great mission program in this church that I commend you for. Your GIC conference is coming up the end of this month. You're going to be talking about taking the gospel to the end of the world. And that's what Jesus said. The field is the world. The good seed are the sons of the kingdom. They're Christians. The bad seed, the weeds, are the sons of the evil one. We would say the sons of the devil. They're unconverted. They are non-Christian, but they're growing in the midst of the wheat, the good seed, the Christians. The enemy, he says, is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. I promise you this world is going to come to an honorable consummation point sometime. I don't know when. You don't know when. Only God knows. But he plainly said here, the harvest is the end of the world, whenever that time comes. And the reapers are the angels that he's going to send into 
the harvest. Now we come to the heart of what I want you to say. But keep in mind the parable and his interpretation of the parable. But Jesus never told stories just to entertain. He never told stories just to get your attention. Always he had a point to that. So we look at the practical exhortation from this. Three things I want to quickly suggest to you we need to do in light of what Jesus said in this awesome parable about weeds. Who are the weeds? They're unconverted church members. People who come to church, they look like Christians. They talk like Christians. They clap like Christians. They sing like Christians. But they have never, ever been saved. That is not what I said. That's what Jesus said. Now, please hear me. I'm not here to put you on a guilt trip. I'm not here to try to sow doubt. Those of you who know me best know I'm not a negative thinking person and I'm not always trying to get church members to doubt their salvation. But the truth of the matter, any intelligent person knows in our world today, in the church, everybody in the church is not in the kingdom of God. Jesus plainly said that. He said, not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everybody, as the old Negro spiritual used to say, everybody talk about heaven ain't going there. Well, that's a pretty good summation of the parable of the weeds. Everybody talk about heaven ain't going there. So now let's look at what he said. He gave a practical warning to them. It said, you who are weeds need to be very careful. You can be in the church and not in the family of God. I'll talk about how that happens here in just a second. But I'm not trying to make you doubt. I'm trying to make you do this. To look carefully this morning, not at the preacher who's a guest here, the pastor emeritus, but in your heart, did you have a genuine salvation experience whenever that time was? And the warning here is that we need to be careful because at the end of the age, the weeds are going to be pulled up and cast into the fire. That's judgment. The second warning, the second thing that I suggest to you is that you note carefully the deception of the weeds of the tares. They have been deceived. By whom? The devil. You remember how all this started? Go back all the way to the Garden of Eden. Genesis chapter 3, about verse 13 there. God is walking in the cool of the day and he asks Adam and Eve a question and they said, well, we were, where are you? And he said, we hid ourselves. We were naked. He said, who told you you were naked? And you know what Adam did? He blamed the woman. He said, she did it. You know what the woman did? She said, the serpent, the deceiver, deceive me. Ever since that day, a part of the way the devil deals with you and me, he doesn't come with a pitchfork and forked horns and that would scare the daylights out of you and me. He is a deceiver. He knows our weak moments, our weak spots. And according to Jesus, he deceives us. How does he do that? Let me just think out loud with you for a moment here. Sometimes the deceiver 
deceives good people with good works. Just like maybe some of us this morning. When I ask you, are you certain that you're a Christian? Charles, I was in this church before you ever got here. My granddaddy was a Baptist preacher. I go to church every Sunday. I read the Bible. I sing the Psalms. I pray the prayers. And I would say amen to all of that, but listen to me carefully. Think with me for a moment. In the New Testament, who gave Jesus more problem than anyone else? I'm going to spell it for you, then I want you to say it out loud two or three times. P-H-A-R-I-S-W-E-S. What? What? Louder. Pharisees. Who were they? There were only 6,000, William Barclay said. They did everything. They read the Bible. They prayed the prayers. They even gave tithe of everything they had. And they were as mean as the devil. You say, how do you know that? Jesus said, how will you escape the damnation of hell? You're like open graves. He was so severe in denouncing the very ones who instigated the crucifixion of Jesus were good people who had been deceived by good works. It can happen to you. I'm not asking how many times you go to Sunday school. I'm not asking how many times you read the Bible or how often you pray or how much money have you given. Have you ever been converted by the power of Jesus Christ? We'll come to that in closing in just a second. But then sometimes he deceives us not just with good works, but good religion. I'm talking about Many times when people ask you, are you right with God? You say, I was baptized. And then you recite when you were baptized. And that's wonderful. I baptized dozens of you people up here. In fact, the man who helped me baptize many is older than any of you here today. It was Mr. Emma Lang. He was 106 when he died, October the 21st. I sang happy birthday to him at the funeral. <laughs> here, careful. Baptism is important. Many of these who've come here, standing here, are going to follow Christ in Christian baptism. Every Christian ought to be baptized, not to be baptized as willful disobedience. But the important thing is not your baptism, but your salvation. The important thing is your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And yet sometimes we substitute Religious things for the real thing. My heart has been changed by the power of Christ. So he deceives good people with good works. He deceives good people with good religion. And then more subtly, at times, he deceives good people with other good people. You know what I'm talking about? Other good people, maybe some of us, have been guilty of what I would call emotional manipulation when we're trying to win somebody to Christ. Let me spell it out for you. Sometimes good soul-winning people intending to help people come to know Christ will say to a prospect who's lost, 
Don't you know that your mother wet her pillow with tears, praying that you would be saved? Don't you ever want to see mama in heaven? Sure, I want to see mama. Yeah, I'll join the church and get you off my back. And they do. But they've never been saved. Or, don't you know your little wife sits in Shays Mountain Baptist every Sunday by herself? Don't you care about that? Sure, I care about that. I'll get that nagging woman off my back. I'll join the church. And they do. Or even more subtle. Now, don't misunderstand me here. I'm going to qualify in a moment what I'm saying. I want to read you some scriptures and tell you how to know Jesus. And here they are. Four spiritual laws or whatever you want to use. Now, if you leave that, now listen, I'm going to lead you in prayer. And if you'll pray the prayer, you'll be saved. And we lead in prayer. And they pray the prayer. And they're as lost as a goose. I have never, ever led anyone to faith in Christ that I did not lead in prayer. But now you listen to me carefully. Simply mouthing a prayer does not put you in a right relationship with Almighty God. It's important, but that's not the main thing. And I don't mean to discourage you from leading people in prayer and praying, quote, the prayer of repentance. But we must make sure the unsaved person doesn't remotely think that mouthing a simple prayer makes them saved. The devil deceives good people with other good people. Quickly. Not only do we need to heed the warning Jesus gave and think about the burning of the tares. We need to note the deception that can be so subtle. Now, anybody, anywhere, any church member is subject to this. But then listen to the warning, the caution from other scriptures. I'll give you just two. There are many of them. Paul in the epistle of 2 Corinthians chapter 13. You remember he had more problems with the church at Corinth than any other church. And here this almost the end of the Corinthian epistle. He wrote four. We have two of them in our New Testament. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 5. Listen to what he says carefully. Examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. Did you hear that? Examine yourself. This is the Apostle Paul talking to people who are members of the church like you and like me. Examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. Test yourselves. Do a self-test. Now, if that doesn't get your attention, then listen to Jesus. Some of the most somber words about the very thing we're talking about here, professing without possessing, religious but lost, tares instead of wheat, weeds instead of wheat. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard your pastor preach on. Matthew 7, verse, 21 and 20, uh, verse 22 and 23. He says, Many will say unto me in that day, what day? The end of the age, the end of the world. Many will say unto me in that day, Lord, listen to me. I prophesied. I was a preacher. I performed, I, I cast out devils. I was a demon caster out of her. I performed miracles. Now look at what he said. Then I will say unto them, 
plainly, I never knew you. Now, dear friend, that somber words, not coming from the preacher, but coming from the Son of God himself, who said in that great, the greatest sermon ever preached, people will come to him saying, didn't we do all these things, Lord? And he will say, I never knew you. Now, listen to me carefully. I don't want any member of Shades Mountain Baptist Church to ever stand before judgment in my God and say, but Lord, Danny Wood, Charles Carter never told me this. I'm telling you this morning, joining the church, being baptized, doing good things is only characteristic of weeds if that's all that's happened. It is more important that you understand. Here in conclusion, let me drive home in your mind four simple things. Here they are. Number one, weeds, tares, whichever word you like, do exist in the church. How do we know? Jesus said so. They're here. Now, I don't know who they are. You see, if I knew who they were, I'd probably go out here and say, you didn't like me when I was here. You're a weed. You voted against us here. You're a weed. I didn't like the way you parted your hair. You're a weed. No, no. I don't know who you are. I don't want to know who you are. But they do exist. People who are in the church, but are not in the kingdom of God. They do exist. We do not know who they are. Only God does. But in the final day of reckoning, God alone will be the judge. Not me, not your enemies, and certainly not your friends. God alone will look into your heart. Now, here's what I want to ask you in closing, and I want every person to think carefully about this. You don't have to answer out loud, but I do want you to do a self-test. That's what Paul said, test yourselves. Here they are. In my heart, is it Am I absolutely certain that I have genuinely been saved? I'm converted. If I died today, I know I would go to heaven. Secondly, has my sinful nature been changed? If your religion has not changed you for the better, you'd better change your religion. That's it in a nutshell. Just being religious is not what it takes. What about your family? How would they grade your spirituality? When you lose your temper and you fly off the handle and you're ugly and you have hidden sins that only come out at home, I'm asking, have you been saved, converted? Has your sinful nature been changed? Or maybe I can summarize it all up. As most of you who know me know, I think the theme of the Christian faith is three words. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And I ask you to ask the question, is he in control? That's what a Lord does. He's a master. He's a boss. He's in control. Is Jesus Christ the Lord of my life? Will you bow your head and close your eyes for just a moment? And I thank you so much for the privilege of preaching and for your being so attentive and 
even in a harsh message like this. But now let's come to the heart of what we're looking at here. We're not going to ask you to come forward. not going to ask you to lift your hands. I'm going to ask you to do something else more important. To look in your heart and answer those questions. Am I absolutely certain I've been saved? I've been converted? I don't mean you have to know the date, but that you know the fact. Has my old nature, my sinful nature, been changed by the power of the Lord God Almighty? Thirdly, is Jesus Christ the Lord? Number one, above everything else in my life. If you can say yes, breathe a prayer of gratitude to God. If you're not certain, or you would say, Charles, I'm beginning to see. I may be in the church, but I've been struggling with this for a long time. I've had so many doubts about my salvation. No, I'm not certain. In a moment, you're going to be dead check some things on your worship guide there. The pastor will tell you what to do. But I want you right now to keep an open mind, an open heart. Holy Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Holy Spirit that applies it to our heart, even when it hurts. And we thank you that you're the God of all grace and mercy and love. And that even weeds can be forgiven and be a part of the family of God. For those who've checked their heart, their tab today, I'm not converted, I'm not a Christian, or I'm not sure that I'm a Christian. Help them to listen as you speak what is true to their heart. In Jesus' name, amen.